Turning this afternoon to Colossians 4, verse 12, if you open your Bible to that place, I'll read to the end of the chapter so that we have the text before us. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in, who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now we begin with these narratives <clears throat> with verse 12 and Epaphras. It was mentioned here and two other times in the New Testament. Once in this epistle before this notice in verse 7 of chapter 1. And with the companion letter, which goes with Colossians, namely the letter to Philemon in verse 23 of that epistle. Now, this mention of Epaphras here tells us something about him, namely that he is from Colossae. How do we know that? Notice what the apostle says. He is one of your number, meaning he is a part of the Colossian church. In fact, according to verse 7 of chapter 1, he is likely the person that launched this church. He is the person who laid the foundation for this church and built it up with his own ministry to the people there. Now, one of your own number in this verse also suggests that Epaphras is not a Jew. He is a Gentile from a Gentile region. This is not to minimize the fact that there would be Jews in Colossae, but notice that he is outside of that description in verse 11 of this fourth chapter, those of the circumcision. So there are a couple of reasons to suggest that Epaphras was ethnically a Gentile by birth. Now there are others, there are others in this uh, sphere of Epaphras' influence, and they are the Laodiceans and the people of Hierapolis who are mentioned in the 13th verse. Because as he is responsible for establishing the Christian church in Colossae, according to chapter 1, verse 7, on our understanding of that passage, 
He is likely the one who established the church in Laodicea, which is also in the book of Revelation, and the church at Hierapolis, which was nearby to Laodicea. These three churches, three noted churches of the Lycus Valley, and we've talked about uh, <clears throat> on a number of occasions, were probably launched by Epaphras, certainly Colossae was. Now, where is he when this epistle is written? Well, he is with Paul, and he's called a fellow bond slave in that 12th verse. So he is in prison along with the apostle in Rome, a statement which is duplicated, namely fellow bond slave, is duplicated in Philemon verse 23, where he is labeled in the English translation a fellow prisoner. Now, I would like to point out a very interesting pattern in comparing Paul and Epaphras in terms of the vocabulary of these two verses and also the vocabulary of other places in Colossians and Paul's letters. Paul frequently describes himself as a prisoner, particularly does so in Ephesians and in Romans. Here, Epaphras is a fellow prisoner with Paul in that Roman imprisonment to which Paul was taken at the end of the book of Acts. The, the term fellow prisoner appears in Philemon verse 23, so there is a identification of situation between Paul the prisoner and Epaphras, his co-prisoner or fellow prisoner. Now he calls him here in verse 12 a bond slave. It is a term that Paul uses of himself in Romans 1 verse 1. So notice that Paul is identifying Epaphras with the same kind of terminology with which he identifies himself. Also in this verse, Epaphras prays for the Colossian church, verse 12. In chapter 1, verse 3 of this epistle, Paul prays for the Colossian church, almost this very same expression. And going on with these parallels, Epaphras is laboring earnestly or striving for the Colossians in Christ, verse 12. Paul, in chapter 1, verse 29 of this epistle, strives, using the very same Greek word that he's using here, strives for the Colossians. Now we come to that phrase, stand perfect. That's a duplication of something the apostle Paul says about himself that he may present every man perfect in chapter 1, verse 28. The Greek word is exactly the same. Then fully assured here in verse 12, which re repeats what Paul says about the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 2 of this epistle, that they may have full assurance, same Greek cognate, not the same Greek word, but they are related Greek words called cognates. Finally, notice the phrase, the will of God here in verse 12. Epaphras is praying that they may know the will of God, even as in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul is urging the Colossians that they may know the will of God. The term for God's will is exactly the same in both instances. 
There's a great deal then of parallel symmetry in the use of vocabulary between Paul the Apostle and Epaphras, his fellow prisoner. It's a duplication which is significant because it's it's setting up what we have seen before in a number of instances, a mirror relationship. With one exception, there is something that does not, that is not the same. There is something that is not duplicated. There is something about Paul and Epaphras which is not recursive. And that is that Epaphras knew the Colossians face to face. He undoubtedly came from Colossae, one of their number, and was a native of the town. But Paul did not know the Colossians face to face, and as far as we know, never saw them. So the disjunction in terms of the face-to-face meeting is a distinction of, of degree and kind. Epaphras, then, is the source. He is the face of the Colossian church. He is the source of Paul being informed of what is going on in Colossae. And though Paul has never seen them face to face, and seeing the face of Epaphras, whom he duplicates and replicates with this repeated vocabulary, as if he is like himself in some ways, a profound relationship between Paul and this man. <clears throat> what Paul is to them is then reflected through Epaphras as what they are to Paul is reflected through Epaphras. So this mirror relationship of being in Christ here is quite poignant, quite emotionally uh, attractive and quite dramatic. Paul seeing in his fellow prisoner Epaphras, the Colossian Christians, and responding to what he sees by making Epaphras his face to the Colossian Christians as he writes this epistle because they would see his face in their minds when they heard this epistle read, in particular these parts where his name occurs. All right, now a brief comment about this phrase that they may stand perfect. This is not a Christian perfectionism implication. Paul is urging the Christians in Colossae, as Epaphras is urging them, to grow to the completeness and fullness of maturity in Christ, even as Paul himself states that in chapter 1, verse 28. It is true that that maturity is a process already accomplished in principle, chapter 2, verse 10. But it is an ongoing process that they may grow up to that fullness of maturity and perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do they reach that that goal? How do they reach that standard of mature perfection in Christ Jesus? Is it through their philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8? No, it is not through philosophy. It is through asceticism, chapter 2, verse 21. No, it is not through asceticism, denying themselves things. Is it through visions in chapter 2, verse 18? No, it is not through extra visions. Is it through the worship of angels, chapter 2, verse 18? No, it is not through the worship of angels that they grow up to this fullness of maturity. Is it through Jewish ritualism and observing Jewish festivals and rites? No, chapter 2, verse 16, it is not through this. So these negations by which they will not attain or achieve the fullness of perfection and maturity in Christ is is not the way. In other words, don't listen to those that are tantalizing you and attempting to seduce you with those suggestions. Well, then, what is the way? Well, it's the litany 
of the new creation in Christ, which we have emphasized throughout these presentations on the epistle union with Christ being in Christ Jesus, circumcised together with him unto death, raised from death with him unto life, renewed in the image of God as he is renewed in the image of God, made new with the new man, the new Adam or the new self that is in Christ Jesus, having a new disposition by regeneration from death to life in Christ, regeneration from death to life. Epaphras matched and molded into the likeness of Paul as Paul is molded into the likeness of Christ as both of them are folded down into the drama of being en Christo. That's the mirror relationship that is behind these comments to this man whom Paul obviously loves and has embraced in the Lord Jesus. Now, the next name is Luke, whose vocation is given to us in this passage. And this is how we know Luke was a doctor who attended the Apostle Paul, uh, taking care of his physical uh, health as well as uh, being a recorder of his uh, biography in the book of Acts. Now, Luke enters the drama or the narrative of Paul's career in Acts chapter 16. It is the second of Paul's missionary journeys, the journey in which Paul goes overland from Antioch of Syria to Troas of Asia Minor, in the northwest corner of Asia Minor, there receiving the Macedonian call, which takes him across the Hellespont to Europe. How do we know that this is where uh, Luke joined Paul? Because there the pronoun we is introduced into the narrative. We went cross to Macedonia. We did this. We went to Thessalonica. We went to Philippi. We went to Corinth, etc. <clears throat> it is these we possessives that give us the clue that it's at this point that Luke enters the narrative. He picks up the record of the former material before chapter 16 of Acts, obviously from other interviews and other research. He tells us at the beginning of his gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts that he did thorough research and interviewed numerous eyewitnesses in order to complete the two volumes that bear his name. All right, well, what about Luke's ethnic background? He is undoubtedly a Gentile because, once again, from this passage in Colossians, he is outside of those named in verse 11 as of the circumcision. So he is an uncircumcised Gentile and thus not a Jew. His faith is that of a Christian convert. He is a believer in Paul's Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when does he become a believer? When does he enter the Christian faith? We do not know. There is no reflection of this in the record, but it must be before he joins Paul at Troas, before the we sections of the book of Acts. So sometime before 
the completion of Paul's second missionary journey while he was still in Asia Minor, which suggests that Luke may have been from Asia Minor, after all, and before he goes across to Europe, Luke joins him. And it was converted either at that point or on the way forward into Europe uh, <clears throat> as they journeyed along. All right, well, how long is Luke with the apostle? Well, he is certainly with him here in the time of writing the Colossian letter, so that means he is with Paul when he's imprisoned at Rome. <clears throat> but those we pronouns or us pronouns, those first-person plural pronouns, they, con- they continue through the book of Acts to the t- end of the, of the book, chapter 28, which means that Luke is present with Paul not only through the remainder of the second missionary journey, Troas onward, but he's also present with Paul on the third missionary journey, which is the most extensive of the apostles' journeys uh, to the churches. <clears throat> and that includes being present with Paul through that long period of two years in Ephesus and all the way to Rome as Acts 27 verse 2 indicates we got on a ship to go towards Rome. Now as you uh, notice this 14th verse Luke's name precedes the name of Demas. If you turn to the other place where his name is mentioned, namely to the epistle to Philemon, in verse 24, you will notice that his name comes after Demas. We noticed this last week about Aristarchus and Mark, that in Philemon, when Paul mentions both of these, all four of these individuals actually, he reverses the order in which he, see, he, he lists their names. It would be, as it were, a chiastic device, uh, folding them back upon one another. Beyond that, I have no suggestion as to why he does it, but it is interesting to note that he does it, and he does it in two cases. Aristarchus and Mark, Mark and Aristarchus, Luke and Demas, Demas and Luke. Perhaps chiasm is all there is to it. Now, Luke appears also, in, I suggested the other place, there is another place in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. You may want to turn quickly to that and follow as I make some comments on this, <coughs> uh, this section where Paul says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now Paul, in this Second Timothy 4 passage, is also in prison. In Second Timothy 1, 16 to 17, he talks about his chains in Rome. So he is in Rome in chains in this epistle's context. So in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Is it the same imprisonment as Colossians 4? And we answer no, and the clue comes from the list of names in this verse. 2 Timothy 4 
11. Notice who is not with him. In this case, when Paul is in Roman chains, who is not with him? Mark is not with him. Mark is with him in Colossians 4. So this is a different instance. This is a different imprisonment. And not only is Mark not with him, notice the other name in verse 12. Tychicus is not with him. He sends the letter to the Colossians and Philemon by the hand or the courier of Tychicus himself. So the fact that Tychicus is not with him means this is a different imprisonment, there's a different situation. Mark is not with him means this is a different situation, a different imprisonment. It points out what we have emphasized, there is a subsequent Roman imprisonment, which means there was a subsequent Roman release and emancipation. Paul was set free at the end of the Colossian imprisonment. He was set free to go on that missionary journey which may have extended to Spain, the fourth missionary journey. And here is a passage which justifies that gap, okay, that he is now in prison again, but it is not the same as that imprisonment in which he wrote Ephesians and Colossians, etc., and Philemon. This is a different Roman imprisonment, and there's a gap in between the two. A gap large enough for Paul to have expanded his missionary journey, his missionary tasks to include Spain and to go back to Corinth and Macedonia, whom he also mentions in this Second Timothy epistle. If you read the entire letter in your privately, okay. Now, the scholars then who agree with the two imprisonments of Paul. And all liberals disagree because they don't believe Paul even wrote these pastoral epistles. So we'll set them aside and we'll deal with the text that is in front of us because we not only believe it's inspired, we believe it's historically accurate. There's no way to to solve or settle this matter except to say there are obviously two imprisonments. There's a gap in between. So when was the first imprisonment? Those scholars who favor this distinction and this separation into two imprisonments argue that the first imprisonment was somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. We are only 30 years or less from the crucifixion of our Lord. Paul is in prison for the first time. Acts chapter 28 takes him to prison in Rome between 60 or 62 A.D., sometime in that period. All right, he's set free in 62 A.D. He goes about his fourth missionary journey. He's arrested again and imprisoned again. He calls himself a criminal in this Second Timothy letter, being treated as a criminal. So he's been arrested again. When did that happen? Scholars who agree with this distinction argue that it happened between 64 and 68 A.D. 64 and 68 A.D. is the high period of the emperor Nero's rule in Rome. And by tradition, Nero is the one that executed the Apostle Paul after this second imprisonment, and he also executed the Apostle Peter. 
And that tradition is suggested in the earliest extra-biblical text or letter, namely the letter of 1st Clement of Rome, Bishop of Rome, to the church in Corinth, somewhere written somewhere around 95, 96 AD, and we have that text. All right, so this passage here in 1st Timothy 4, 10, 11, and 12 clearly indicates that there is a different imprisonment for the apostle. To put it in chronological order, we suggest the dates for the first imprisonment, 60 to 62, the second imprisonment, 64 to 68, the execution of the apostle before 68 AD, the emancipation of the apostle after 62 AD, and a fourth missionary journey about which we have no other information except a few suggestions in 2 Timothy, Nothing, no, no detailed itinerary for Luke probably wasn't with him, but at any rate, we can safely say that that occurred somewhere between 62 and 64 A.D. Now, let's reflect for a moment on something different here. And that's the name of Luke, as well as the name of Mark in this 2 Timothy 4 passage. Luke and Mark together in that 2 Timothy 4.11. Two authors of a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two authors of a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are friends, companions, fellow bond servants of the Lord, perhaps even fellow in prison bond servants of the Lord. Namely, they weren't just free to come and go, they were actually imprisoned themselves. I'm not going to press that, but I want you to notice this relationship of identification between Luke and Mark. Both are present with Paul in Rome during his first imprisonment, and this is suggestive of a very close interface between the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Paul. The one mirroring the other as narrative biography, gospel of Mark and gospel of Luke, mirrors narrative biographical identification. Paul's epistles showing his identification with Christ in his narrative biography, his life, death, and resurrection. Paul in Christ tied into that drama as well as Paul's epistles showing his proclamation of believers' identification with Christ, especially their participation in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Believers are also in Christ as Luke and Mark are in Christ, as their gospels are inviting you to be in Christ. These persons, Paul, Mark, Luke, share the same narrative. They are mirror reflections of the same paradigm. They are richly drawn into the same drama. They are en Christo, in Christ. They died together with him. They were buried together with him. They are raised up together with him. They are seated in heavenly places together with him. Paul, Mark, and Luke share the same narrative biography. 
even as they share the same historiography in the sense that they are participants in the history of Paul and Christ at that time. Do not think that Paul is misrepresenting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think that Paul is preaching an alternative gospel to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is classic liberalism. Paul invented a different view of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have two different kinds of Christianity. We have a Jesus Christianity and we have a Paul Christianity. That's the liberal way of setting Jesus over against Paul or Paul over against Jesus. That is rubbish. It is biased, higher critical nonsense. But it is an agenda to break Jesus of Nazareth away from this hard, crusty, old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy, stayed-in-the-wood Paul of, of Tarsus. No. A thousand times no. Mark and Luke are communicating to Paul what they knew and had experienced or had, had researched. Mark leaning on Peter's eyewitness testimony. Luke learning on the eyewitness testimony of probably dozens, if not even hundreds of individuals in the case of him compiling his own gospel and reporting it to the church. And now to Demas. Notice that Demas here sends greetings. He sends the same kind of greetings that structure these sections from verse 10 to verse 18. Demas is communicating Christian greetings. He is with Paul in prison, obviously, for he sends his greetings along with Luke and the others. This is confirmed by Philemon, verse 24, where his name reappears in the same context of one who's greeting Philemon, who is, of course, the one whose house the Colossians worship in. He is a non-Jew, that is, he's a Gentile. Once again, verse 11 of Colossians 4 is determinative for that statement. When he attached himself to Paul is unknown, and he has mentioned only one other place besides this and Philemon 24, and that is 2 Timothy 4.10, which we have already noted. Now let's go back and take another closer look at 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The vocabulary here is very important. First of all, why has Demas deserted the Apostle Paul? The desertion 
is defined or based upon his love for the present world. The Greek language here is literally his love for the now age. His love for the now time. His love for the now eon or the now era. Now that means that Demas has abandoned his apparent love for the world to come. The not yet eon, the not yet world. The eon or era or world of that other world. Demas has settled for an eschatology of the horizon alone. A worldly, this worldly eschatology alone, even though Demas has learned from Paul that Christian eschatology, the eschatology of Jesus and the epistles of the New Testament is vertical and horizontal. It is heavenly and earthly. It is not yet and now. It is semi-eschatological. Emphasizing both the horizontal now and the vertical not yet. But Demas embraces the pagan eschatology of the present world the now arena, and in so doing repudiates the eschatology of the heavenly world, the not yet arena. You cannot miss this in what Paul says about him here. His love for the now world means that he has rejected the that world, the other world. He has turned his back upon it, even as he has turned his back upon the apostle Paul. He has deserted the apostle and he has deserted the doctrine of the apostle. Demas makes a heaven of this world and deserts, rejects, abandons the heaven of God's world, the heaven of the risen Jesus Christ's world, the heaven of the world of the proceeding hell holy spirit of the triune God. Demas chooses this world and refuses that heavenly world. Demas apostatizes because he loves this world and its death. Because a horizontal eschatology, a pagan eschatology, a merely Jewish flatline Eschatology is an eschatology of death, not life, death. Remember, Demas had heard what Paul writes in this letter to the Colossians. He'd heard it with his own ears. He'd had the chance to talk about it and discuss it with the apostles. All of it was in front of him. He knew 
the kind of thing that Paul was talking about when he was writing the epistle to Philemon. And it is conceivable that he knew what was written when Paul knew the doctrine that was written when Paul penned the letter to the Ephesians. He knew. He had heard it. He knew about union with Christ. He had been taught. He had heard it. That a life hidden in Christ with God is a life which is redeemed and preserved, precious in God's sight. He had heard. He had learned the narrative of dying with Christ in that eschatological death of being raised up from death in Christ's resurrection from the dead, of being transformed in Christ to a new creation. He had heard that litany, that litany of salvation and regeneration, which we have rehearsed in these studies, and you have heard it. All this language and imagery and revelation was well known to Demas, but it had no effect on his heart. It had no effect on his center of love. It had no effect on his affection for Christ or for Paul. He rejected it all finally. He deserted it and the Christ who was the center of it and the apostle who had lived it before his face. He turned his back on it. Demas has deserted me. Why? Why? The riches of these treasures being shown to him and explained to him and even discussed with him face to face, personally, with the Apostle Paul. No greater apostle in the history of the church than him. And Demas turns his back on it. He forsakes it. Paul, this in Christ lover of those friends gathered around him who once attended him in prison, Paul, forsaken and deserted by demons. What had Paul done? What had Paul done to become a pariah in Demas' opinion? One whom he would scorn, scorn for the sake of this worldly life. What had Paul done to him that he would respond in this way? Paul had treated him with respect and with love and with integrity. Demas turned his back on Paul, rejecting that love and respect and the humble apostle's demonstration of his affection. Why would Demas abandon and perhaps even disparage the apostle who reflected the love, patience of God in Christ to him. Why this radical shift? Oh yes, we know it is related to the now attraction of the world. The present world where the action is, where the future may be found now, future of success and worldly wisdom. How much more fulfilling to have the pleasures and the wisdom and the erstwhile success of the present. 
had Demas been seduced by the elite errorist group in Colossae? Was he attracted to the present benefits of the worship of angels or ceremony rituals or earthly traditions? Was he drawn, perhaps, to the Greco-Roman culture of power and control? And thus, the weakness of the second imprisoned Paul was a sign of the impotence of his gospel and the impotence of the heaven it promised. This guy can't be telling the truth. He's been arrested twice. What kind of gospel is this? This is not the way to get ahead and be powerful and successful and rich and famous in the world. Demas' view of what he had heard from Paul, what he had heard of the gospel, was it was not a real force or a real reality because it was invisible. It was available only to faith and hope in Christ, like pie in the sky by and by, not flesh and blood, not the real flesh and blood of this visible world with its sensual substance and its tangible worldly success. That's what I want. I want to get my hands on that. Because I can grab it. I can hold on to it. Not this. Will of the wisp. Was that what drove him to reject the Christ of holiness and righteousness whom Paul reflected? Drove him to reject it all for the pleasures and success of this world? In the end, as we meander around these options, we really do not know what particular worldly enticement drew this fake Christian. He was a fake. We do not know what pattern of worldly enticement drew this counterfeit Christian to show his true colors, his heart of contempt, his mind set on the world and the flesh, his mind captivated by the so-called wisdom of this present age. In the end, we do not know. But we do know it captured it. We do know it was where his heart, mind, and soul were focused. That's where his personality was driven. We know that. And we are sobered by this statement of his apostasy, his heartless treatment of Paul and his heartless treatment of Christ, his mindless forsaking of the gifts of heaven, his death wish, his death wish reversal of turning his back on the grace and the life and the death and the resurrection and glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. His forsaking the narrative of eternal life for the story of eternal death. Demas has deserted me for he has loved this present age. Now, does the gospel of 
the non-Christian culture in whatever ramifications and expositions and more and and, um, and appearances that takes in any time in the history of the world, including 2018. The love of the world is the death wish of all pagan neoliberalism. It is the death wish which dominates their control and their will to power. It is what is turning this culture and this world into a very hellhole. To kill, murder, maim, and destroy because of the this worldly manifestation of that time type of depravity. The only remedy for it, the only genuine remedy for it, is not a death wish, but an eternal life wish. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only answer that can explain the other side of those who just want to destroy. For he came to give life, and life in abundance. All right, we'll stop here for our break. Stretch your legs and we'll return to take on Nympha and Archippus. Now the next name is a name of some controversy because of the manuscripts, namely the name Nympha. And on your outline, I've given you probably more than you want, but it's important for you to see a little bit of the actual Greek to understand this discussion. The Greek word that appears here in the text is nymphon, which is an accusative or direct object. You greet nympha or nymphon in the Greek text, which is the direct object of that verb greet. That's what the accusative case means. <clears throat> also, accusative case is the direct object in Latin. But the question is, though this is the accusative case, what would the nominative case be? What would the, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the regular uh, noun form in the nominative be for this name nymphon? Well, here is where the confusion arises, or at least the discussion arises. It is possible, and you can see from the outline, that it could be nympha, feminine, or nymphos, masculine. <clears throat> Actually, there shouldn't be that little accent over the second letter in nymphos, but I couldn't get rid of it on my computer. But at any rate, uh, <clears throat> if you're... If you're uh, Technically, uh, Greek on this, that's that, that little line above the, what looks like a U on the second, on nympha shouldn't be there. All right, so, um, you would decline 
nympha and get nymphon, even if it, if it were feminine. You would decline nymphos and get nymphom if it were accusative, even masculine. Well, since you can't solve the gender by nymphon, because it could be either masculine or feminine, then what do you use to try to settle the question of whether it's a him or a her or something else? Well, you turn to the pronoun, which is in this verse. The church that is in her house. Now, the pronoun autes, which you can see there in your outline, is feminine for her and reflects the gender of the person named. In other words, it would be modifying nympha, feminine, for the nominative of nymphon. And if you're following all this, this has strong support in the Greek manuscripts. In fact, the decision is that it's the strongest supported personal pronoun, the outtase. But to muddy the waters, there are two other possibilities. There is a tradition, or our manuscripts, which read outu, which is the masculine personal pronoun. So that would mean the church that is in his house. And the New King James follows that tradition, or follows that reading of the Greek text here, even as the old King James followed that tradition or that reading. And there are manuscripts, as I say, that have outu, masculine, the church that is in his, in his house. But there is a third possibility. So there is a her reading, there is a his reading, and there is an outone which means there, that's the plural personal pronoun, the church that is in their house. Well, nympha is singular, nymphon is singular. So how do they get a plural there? Well, they go back to the word brethren, which is plural, and they say, they read the verse as follows. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also nympha, and the church that is in their house, referring back to the brethren. So, greet all of these who are brethren and the church in their house. Outone. Now, is there any possible ability of solving this uh, uh, contrasting readings of the manuscripts? Androgenes. Oh, a neuter? No, uh, no, none of none of none of the readings have a neuter. Okay, okay. Woman and man, same thing. Whatever that beast is, or right? transvestite, or something. Now, the earliest Greek manuscript of this epistle, which is one of the most complete manuscripts of the New Testament. It's a papyrus manuscript discovered in the 1920s called the Chester Beatty Papyri. It dates, by some estimates, from about the middle of the 2nd century, that is, from about 150 A.D. 
Well, we could look at that earliest Greek manuscript and find this verse in that one and say, well, the earliest Greek manuscript, which is called P46, papyrus number 46, P46 reads X, Y, Z. And that would settle the car, that settle the argument. Or at least it would say the earliest manuscript says this. But unfortunately, that earliest P46 manuscript of Colossians has a gap between verses 13 and 15. Either because it was broken out or because it was folded out or something, you know, it just, it just did not survive in the current copy of that manuscript. So we can't appeal to the oldest known manuscript to solve the dilemma. So we're back trying to juggle the weight of the importance of the various manuscript traditions and the reading that is supported by the scholars, and these are textual critical scholars, they they don't have a particular bias in general, but the reading that is supported is the reading that you find in the ESV and the New American Standard, namely the church in her house. And I think that's probably the most accurate reading based upon the current state of the manuscript evidence. So the woman, Nympha, is greeted as Philemon is greeted in the letter which bears his name. Remembering that Colossians and Philemon are written at about the same time, she is greeted as a host or hostess of the church which meets in her house as he is greeted as the host of the church which meets in his house. There is precedent for other females providing room in their homes for the church gatherings of the apostolic period. Last week, we talked about one of them. We talked about the mother of John Mark. Her name was Mary, Mary of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, there is a prayer meeting in her home, obviously a church gathering or a gathering of Christians in Jerusalem. One of the churches of Jerusalem, perhaps there were many of them in that city, many individual churches, but at least we can support Mary, the mother of John Mark, as being a hostess for a church gathering in her home. And also, Lydia of Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 20, we ought to look at this uh, just so you see uh, the issue here. Turn back to Acts chapter 16, verse 40. I'm sorry, I I may have said 20, I may have misspoke. Acts chapter 16, verse 40. And this is when Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. And at the end of the story, they're released after the Philippian jailer is converted. They're released from prison and they entered the house of Lydia. Now you'll notice, I don't know what your version says if you're looking at ESV, but my New American Standard, the house of Lydia is in italics. So it's imported into the text to, to smooth out the reading. Well, how do they know it's the house of Lydia? If you go back to verse 15. Lydia and her household had been baptized. 
That is in the text, in the Greek text, in verse 50. It's not italicized. So the household of Lydia is baptized. When they are released, they go to her house from the context of the, of the uh, chapter and the narrative of the chapter. So Lydia also has a, uh, a church meeting in her home to which Paul and Silas are released after they are uh, emancipated from prison. This issue here is a refreshing reminder to us. The refreshing reminder to us that women as well as men are drawn into the union of the narrative of the life of Christ. They too are crucified with him. They too are buried with him. They too are raised again and regenerated by resurrection. They too are seated in heavenly places being glorified in him. Joined by grace through faith with his life, death and regeneration by resurrection. The gospel of saving grace is for both genders. Both genders. And it has been since the beginning. One of the remarkable differences between the Old Testament sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, could only be received by males, and the sign of the covenant in the New Testament, which is received by both males and females, water baptism. The inclusion of women in the covenant explicitly clear. No question about it. No gender bias. For all are equal before the sight of Christ in their need for the forgiveness of sins, their need to die together with Christ, their need to be buried together with Christ and their old life buried away, their need to be resurrected and regenerated by resurrection of Christ from the grave, their need to be joined and Christo as any male is joined in Christo. No inferiority in Christianity. Role distinctions, but no inferiority of dignity. All right, we come then to Archippus, verse 17, the last name in this series of personalities. Now, Paul here instructs the Colossians to say to Archippus, which raises the question, well, where is Archippus? Well, Archippus is obviously, if they're going to say something to him, he is there where they are. He is in Colossae. And that means we qualify what we have said before about this list of names from verse 7 on down, Mark, Barnabas rather, and Archippus are not with Paul in prison. Archippus is back in Colossae. Now his name appears elsewhere in scripture in Philemon verse 2, confirming the fact that he is from Colossae as a Colossian, and that he is part of the Colossian church as it meets in Philemon's house and he is there. 
addressed as one who is present there in that epistle. All right, so we know he's a Colossian. We know he's a part of the church that meets in Philemon's house. Do we know anything more from Philemon to about Archippus? He may have been the son of Philemon and Apphia, who, is list, who both are listed in verse 2 of Philemon as well, since they are in sequence, potentially father Philemon, mother Apphia, and son Archippus, possibly. There's debate about that, but I tend to think that that is true as my comments in detail on this in the, my lectures on Philemon would indicate. All right, now, <clears throat> there's a term here in Colossians 4.17 that we need to look at. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. Now, the word in the Greek text here, translated ministry, is diakonia, which means literally deacon. Take heed to the deaconship. Is that what Paul's saying here? <clears throat> well, let's go back to 1 Timothy, or let's go to 1 Timothy, not back to 1 We haven't looked at 1 Timothy today, to date. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where this same Greek word diakonia occurs. And in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul writes, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, diakonia. Does it make sense to read deacon there? He has put me into a deacon? No, it's absurd. Paul was never a deacon. He didn't hold that office. He is an apostle. So the word diakonia can be more broadly translated service or ministry than simply officer as deacon. And there are other passages in the New Testament where that is true. It does not indicate an office. The term diaconia does not indicate an office. It indicates service or ministry to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.1, Ephesians 4.12, 2 Timothy 4.5. I, I list them out simply so that you know that there are other instances in which diaconia does not mean an office of the church. Now, the last thing to note about Archippus is what is described of him in, as how he's described in Philemon 2. Not only his name in Philemon 2, but also the fact that he's called a fellow soldier. Now, that's a word that is also used to describe Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. It's a military term, <clears throat> fellow soldier. Why would Paul use it in Philemon to describe Archippus? Well, he's a companion in this spiritual warfare, which includes the struggle and the conflict and the clash between the kingdom of light in the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of darkness in sin, death, and Satan. It's a reflection of that lengthy exposition of that spiritual warfare, <clears throat> which he describes at the end of the book of Ephesians, namely Ephesians 6. 
All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. That concludes our detailed look at the names, with the exception of the last name in the epistle, which is the name of Paul in verse 18. We've already pointed out the inclusio of grace, which folds together at the bookends, the beginning and end, this epistle to the Colossian church. Chapter 1, verse 2, grace be with you. Chapter 4, verse 18, grace be with you. Around the body of this epistle, folding in the, the litany of the new creation in this epistle, the riches of uh, your life hidden with Christ in God described in this epistle, they are folded around and they're surrounded by grace, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is a precious inclusio. You're included in, you're included under the canopy within the bookends of the grace of God. But let's notice one other thing. <clears throat> the name that begins this epistle and the name that ends this epistle. The first name in the letter is Paul. It's the first word in the letter in the Greek text. The last name in the letter is Paul. It's not only folded into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also folded and included within the biographical experience of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was one in Christ himself, and now he's writing a letter to the Colossians to fold them into the same biographical story that he has experienced. You, crucified together with Christ. You, buried together with Christ. You, raised again and regenerated by Christ's regeneration from the grave. You made new in the new Adam, the new man that is in Christ Jesus. You raised up to glory and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This imagery of Paul's own biography being the paradigm of the drama of the biography that the, that the, <coughs> excuse me, that the Colossian Christians were invited to to reflect, to mirror, to enter into its great riches, even as if they, even though they had never seen the apostle making the invitation, describing the uh, the, the the drama and the narrative power of this uh, gospel, they've never seen him face to face. Nevertheless, they see him in the epistle. They see him in the reflection of the Christ of the letter, who is their savior as well as the apostles himself. Grace be with you all. Any questions or comments as we end this epistle of the apostle, an epistle which draws you more sweetly, I trust, into your life hidden with Christ in God? Randy? He says his own hands. Luke wrote quite a few of his epistles with dictated to Luke. Or uh, there's no way of knowing uh, what role Luke may have had or what role anyone would have had except one place where he mentions his secretary. I can't remember which epistle that is, but he does indicate that somebody else had been his 
a stenographer or his secretary. <clears throat> it's it's not unusual to think Marge. There you go. Okay. There's 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 a there's a. I knew there was a name there somewhere. Thank you. Um, so uh, it's it, not impossible to use others, but here he's writing uh, with his own hand because I think he's trying to personalize the contact that they they didn't know him face to face. So this was another way of ingratiating himself personally to them. You see that you see you see these characters. You see these Greek characters on this papyrus. I wrote this with my own hand. It's like you're getting a personal letter and not an email. In 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 the old days when you used to get a personal letter. Origin must have a bunch of secretaries because he yes yes. Now there is a tradition that he had seventy stenographers or secretaries working. While he was roaming around, excuse me, roaming around dictating. Now that is a tradition which uh, sounds a little bit uh, <clears throat> hyperbolic, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I I, I leave it. Uh, yeah, he, of course, his corpus is immense, and a good bit of it was destroyed, unfortunately. Thank God. What? Thank God. Thank God for destroying Origen's corpus. What kind of heresy is that? What's wrong with Origen? <laughs> You've been reading liberal scholars. He speculated way too much, just like Augustine. That's my opinion, all right? How much Origen have you read? How many primary documents have you examined? Not all of them, thank you. <laughs> How many sermons have you read? You need to read. A, you need to read. You need to read a sermon from Origen. You're going to criticize him. You better read him. Any other questions or comments? Erroneous or otherwise? <laughs> All right, well, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks for the Apostle Paul and for your word through him by inspiration. A word which describes to us in a full and rich manner, what it means to be in Christ Jesus, your dear Son, by the work of the Spirit. Our desire, O Lord, is to grow up into the full maturity of life hidden with Christ in God. Even as we love that future world, other world, that heavenly world, where he sits at your right hand. And bless you that there in his presence you see us mirrored in his face. And so we pray that in the inclusio of the grace of Christ, we might be folded more sweetly and more richly down into the in Christ dimension of the gospel. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.